Hello and welcome to Five Alice Productions' Sonda Story Slam. My name is Vicky. And I'm April. Today we will be sharing true stories inspired by strangers on the street. Our performers were asked to develop characters from candid photography into a well-rounded person. The story's theme is facing the unknown, such as young love being tested by the cruelty of the world, responsibilities of parenthood and the loss of loved ones. To begin this soulful journey of personal exposure, we have a story from Betty Rawlinson with For Better or For Worse. War does not just destroy a, a country. It can destroy love too. It can push it to breaking point. 1938. Such a wonderful year. I just turned 16. I had my whole future ahead of me. I was going to be an artist. I was happy. My whole family was happy. We'd had street parties and I just met the love of my life. I remember my sister. She was younger, seven. She'd been bugging me for days to take her to the sweet shop. She'd saved up all her pennies. And it was only down the road and round the corner. So I eventually agreed to take her. We stepped out. The smell of fresh bread from the bakery that just opened next door. It filled the street. And as we walked down, I saw the bench. The bench I'd always sat on. I claimed it as my own because it was my spot, my thinking spot, where I always went. But somebody was sat there. This boy, he had these deep brown eyes and this gorgeous brown hair. And our eyes met. And this feeling, I never had this feeling before. It was happiness, excitement, scared. But now I know it was love. And our eyes met for what? It felt like forever. But it, it must have only been a few seconds. And then my sister started shouting, he loves you, he wants to marry you. And of course, we both got very embarrassed and he went bright red and I stormed off, dragging her with me. We got to the sweet shop and I, I told her she couldn't afford her favourite sweets. She couldn't count. She wasn't as intelligent as I was. On the way back, I, I noticed he wasn't at the bench anymore. and I felt incredibly sad that she'd do this to me. She'd take away that one moment. How could I forget that one moment? She, we got home and I got my painting stuff because that's what calmed me down. And I went and I sat on the bench. I started to sketch and get all my colours out and he was there. He came and sat next to me. He smiled and his smile was so gorgeous. And we talked till the sun set about our futures. I was going to go to Paris, art school. He was going to make, be a mechanic and design all the cars. We started to date. Well, 
meet up. Our parents would never approve. We'd sneak out and we'd pass little notes. <laughs> Just little things, but they made me so happy. September the 1st, 1939. A day that turned my world and many others upside down. World War II. Me and my family, we, we crowded around the radio. Winston Churchill. Britain and France are at war with Germany. Silence. My family started to speak, but I couldn't hear what they were saying. Everything was muffled. All I could think was, Tom, the one I love, he has to go and fight. I couldn't move, but I found myself running outside and he was stood opposite. Our eyes met. I knew, I knew this could be the last moment I ever saw him. I ran to him and we hugged and I didn't want to let go. I couldn't let go. He kissed me on the forehead and he told me, I promise you, I will come home. I will come back for you. Life went on. I got used to life in the war, working in the factories, long hours for virtually nothing. But I, I knew that when I went home, occasionally a letter would be there from Tom. It's what kept me going. He'd tell me how much he loved me and that he was going to come home to me. He promised. He signed every letter off with, I promise you, I'm going to come home. I will return to you. But one day I came home and there, there wasn't a letter, but a telegram. It told me, missing in action. And I knew, I always knew there was a chance that that moment could be the last moment I ever saw him, but it wasn't real, not till now. And the world that I, I got used to was, it was turned upside down. What if he never came home? Months went by, and I hadn't heard anything, no letters, no nothing. It was hard, knowing I might never see him again. I overheard his sister. She told me his regiment was to come home today. And she didn't know what to do. Because she didn't know if he'd be there. But neither did I. And the only thing I could think was the train station's only a mile down the road. So I waited. I waited for hours and hours on end. Three trains. Nothing. Families reunited. Brothers. Uncles. Fathers. Sons. But not him. And not the one I loved. I was about to give up and then... I, I looked across the platform. And there, it, it looked like him, but how was I to know? He'd been gone for five years. 
what had changed him? But then I used Matt. And I got that same feeling I did the very first time I saw him. Happiness, excitement, scared. And I knew. I knew it was him. He'd come home to me like he promised. He'd returned. Thank you. A single moment can change your life was the tagline for Betty Rawlinson's story, played by Chloe Gardner. And we now have Julie with I Love You But I Hate You. Do you ever have one of those days when everything is going so well and then halfway through your day, it just takes a turn for the complete worse? This is how my family's Saturday went last Saturday. Me and my husband, Matt, were planning to go to see a rugby match with our son, who had just come home from university. He, had, he has made us so proud. He just won his first rugby match with the university rugby team. And as, our, as my husband Matt's favourite team, Ireland, as he's from Ireland, was playing, we decided we should take our son James to go and see them. It was a beautiful sunny morning, we're all getting ready to go, Matt's getting the car ready. I turn to James and say, James, do you mind carrying the tickets for me? Keep an eye on them, give them to me when we get to the doors. So we get in the car, we're driving, we've got the radio blasting with some 80s tunes. Suddenly, Matt turns to me and says, Julie, can you smell burning? I turn to him and go, no. He goes, no, I can really smell burning, Julie. That's when my nose starts to pick it up. I dismiss it first off that it's the car in front. Our car has nothing wrong with it. We had it serviced recently. And then we see the smoke starting to come out the bonnet. So Matt pulls it over. Me and James get out of the car. I start scanning through my phone to try and find some way of getting to a rugby match within 10 minutes that we had. So I call my friend. She picks up. She says, Julie, are you all right? You sound panicked. I'm, I'm like, yes, I'm really panicking. We have to get to a rugby match in 10 minutes. and Our car has broken down. So she says, that's all right. I'm going into town. I'll give you all a lift. So we get in her car. She pulls up. We go off to the rugby match. We're really excited, even though we are 10 minutes late. We get to the entrance. My son James starts going through his pockets for the tickets. And he starts taking longer than is needed to find some tickets in his pocket. He's searching all through his pockets. And he turns to me and says, Mom, I kind of forgot the tickets. James, I paid good money for those tickets. And I trusted you as a 20-year-old university student. I expect you to keep a good eye on things. And so I start faffing through my bag, trying to find receipts for these tickets. I say to the woman behind the counter, 
listen, we did have tickets, but we have forgotten them. So is there any way we can get into the rugby match? She turns to me and says, no, you'll have to buy new tickets, I'm sorry. So at this point, I'm really starting to stress out with James. My husband Matt says it's all right, I'll pay for them. I'll use my credit card, I'll pay for them. So we get into the match. We find out we're on the top, right at the top of the stadium. So, which would usually be quite a good view if you're not sat behind seven foot blokes in front. So we're trying to see through them and they're up and they're like, yeah. <laughs> we're trying to see through them. We win the match. We find this out because the celebration that goes on. We're still celebrating, even though we didn't really see much of it. And we're jumping for joy. We're so happy that all thought leaves us completely. We leave our seats, we're still celebrating. And then we get to the front door, front of the stadium. And James turns to me and says, how are we actually going to get home? Our car is sat on the side of a road in a lay-by with a repairman. So Matt turns to me and says, well, we're going to have to get the bus. So I get out my purse. I haven't got enough money to get us there for all three of us to catch the bus. So Matt again pays for us. The bus journey was slow and full of fans. Still celebrating. And we still celebrated even though our car was still in a lay-by. We finally got we finally got home. We're going through the door. James starts, we all take off our coats, James starts to take off his coat and he decides that he's going to have another look in his pocket for the tickets that he supposedly left at home. So he delves in through his pockets, he goes into the inside pocket of his coat and he turns to me and Matt and says, Mom, you know the tickets that I left on my drawer? They're in my inside coat pocket. As a mother, you do not know how stressed out I became at this point. I paid so much money for those tickets, and Matt, my husband, had just had to buy another pair. I was so frustrated, and as much as I love my son, I just wanted to shout at him. But I refrained myself from shouting at him as I knew I wanted to end his trip on a high because he was back to university on Monday. <laughs> I turned to him and said, listen, James, next time you come home and we go and watch a rugby match, give the tickets to me, I'll put them in my purse and then we won't have this accident again. And Matt turns to me and says, 
What are we going to do about the car? Thank you. Performed by Sean Gogley. Her tagline was, the tale of the tragic tickets. The next story we have for you today is Geraldine Fraser with the email. So, ever since I was a child, I always loved Oreos. I mean, who wouldn't? The lovely cream in the middle, you can dip it in milk. But every night, I went downstairs and took an Oreo from the cupboard. I don't know why it always happened, but it started all started when I was six. I mean, I know I shouldn't, and my parents even said to me, Geraldine, you must not take enough biscuit, I swear, or you'll be locked in your room tonight. I know it's a bit of a statement, but... It happened in those days. So, every night, I took one. My parents didn't find out in the end. It took quite a while, actually, until I was 16. But I wasn't alone. You see, when I was in high school, I studied mathematics. All the numbers and calculations and Pythagoras, 3.14... It was just my favorite subject. It was incredible. Who wouldn't love maths? I don't understand it. Everyone said to me, Geraldine, you are crazy. But I just loved it. It was my passion. So through high school, I aced at every single paper and exam. And I went to Oxford. It was an incredible experience. I just loved it. But... My friend Jamie, she invited me to this Freshers' Fair party at her house. And that's where I met Oliver. He liked Oreos too. Well, I saw him across the room. And I looked at him and thought, he's strange. Let's go and talk to him. And we hit it off. We talked for a while. He seemed to like Oreos and maths. And it was incredible. So then we just, I don't know, the magic happened and we stuck together like glue. It takes time, I guess, to form a relationship. I don't know much myself. This was the first time I had experience in it. And, well, we just stayed together. As soon as we knew it, I graduated from Oxford and he did too. And then... We built a family together. We grew up in England, just in Gloucester, and raised a small baby called Jeremy. Surprisingly, he learned washing up when he was only 12. And he loved it. He seemed to love it all the time. I mean, what 12-year-old does want to do the washing up and wash their own clothes and everything? <laughs> Seems unnatural though in th these days, but... My day, it was incredible. But it didn't seem to be the case. Me and Oliver had a very special connection. We loved going gambling and the fruit machines on our honeymoon in Vegas. As soon as I saw the fruit machine, I said to Oliver, Darling, why don't we go and play that game? And I won. Only on the first time, of course. 
but it was incredible. We just carried on gambling and playing, and I couldn't help myself. I couldn't stop. Just the addiction. So we went out at night, every night, to go and gamble and have fun. It was our thing. And Jeremy didn't seem to mind, but he wasn't happy. Oliver said to me one night, you know, Geraldine, you can't just leave him every night. But I just said, no, Oliver, darling, it's fine. He enjoys it being here. You can see he plays Scrabble and he hangs out with the neighbor kids. But Oliver just shook his head. He saw how Jeremy was so sad every day, like a growing pain inside you. But I just carried on, like a foolish mother. I always thought I would make an amazing mother, but that wasn't the truth. Time from with years to come, Jeremy grew his own family, little baby George and his wife Olivia. They were scheduled to come over from Australia to England to have Christmas with us. But on Christmas Eve, about seven o'clock, I got an email. The email said that they couldn't make it. Jeremy was scared for George to be in the influence of me, of all people, his own mother. But they just couldn't come. I was shocked. I didn't, I could hardly speak. I just didn't know what to do. I honestly looked at Oliver and thought, what am I going to do? Why don't they want Christmas with me, Oliver? And Oliver just knew what was right. He knew that Jeremy was in pain all these years and I couldn't do anything about it. Anything. So... I just went upstairs, crying my eyes out, locked myself in my bedroom, and well, didn't come out till Christmas Day. So the next morning on Christmas, I unlocked the door. I walked downstairs slowly, and I went into the kitchen because Oliver wasn't in the sitting room, which is not normal for him. He would be around the tree, decorating or singing merry songs. But then I opened the kitchen door and saw him lying down there, unconscious, not breathing, pale. My own love, the man I married and swore that I would love forever and protect, just lying down there, not breathing, I ran down to check his pulse and it wasn't beating, it wasn't there. I even called an ambulance because I thought, no, this can't be true, there must be something you can do, there must be something. But I just couldn't, so now I'm all alone. I work at Tesco's and with my dog Archie. My friend told me, Jamie, that I should get a dog for a companion, but I don't know what to do, honestly. I don't know what to do next. I'm all alone now. Thank you.
The winner takes it all was Geraldine's tagline, performed by Fran Halligan. Our project is based on Sonder, a term coined by John Koenig. John created the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, which puts words to emotions that don't exist in the English language. The definition of Sonder is a realisation that every passerby lives a life as vivid and complex as your own. Our next story is Tara Martin, A Taste of the Dark Side. I have always wanted to be like my brother. He was like a real-life Bart Simpson, always getting into trouble and playing different tricks and stunts at school. Like the time that he swapped the whiteboard markers for the permanent ones in class. He had a lot of respect from the other school kids for this, and I secretly idolised him. I was the more sensible, plain child, and I never had the guts to do what he did. The only club that I I went to with my brother Hugh was Cubs, and this was this was a few days before our ceremony where we took a vow to become proper cubs. Uh, on my honour, I vowed to do my duty to God and to the Queen, that, that kind of stuff. And I was practising my promise in the living room when he walked in and he asked me what I was doing. And I told him and he laughed at me. And he said, Tara, that is exactly why you're so lame. And even though that really hurt, I knew it was true. So I hatched a plan to change that for the ceremony. On the day, uh, it was Thursday evening, and our mum drove us to the scout hall and we were dressed in our freshly cleaned and ironed cub sweatshirts. And I could taste the fear in my mouth as I walked into the hall, and we were set in lines with the other cubs, uh, preparing for the ceremony. And the only comfort that I had was the scent of the lemony washing powder my mum had used to clean my sweatshirt. And I watched as Hugh strutted forward to take his promise. And I don't know how he managed it, but he, because I knew he hadn't practised it, but he he managed to pull it off so well. And he received his pink and yellow striped necktie uh, to demonstrate who, or to say which scout group he was part of. And then it was my turn. I was asked by our scary and strict cub leader, Teresa, to step forward. And between us, there was this flagpole held by another cub called Jason. And she asked me to put my left hand on the polished wooden pole and my right hand in salute. And then she asked me to recite the promise. And this was the moment that I had been waiting for. I looked up at her beady eyes from behind her enormous nose. I took a deep breath and I shouted, I solemnly swear that I'm up to no good. 
the next few moments happened in slow motion. I was still looking up at her eyes, and I saw them widen to almost a normal size in surprise. And I saw the blood rush up her face like, like a meter on one of the scare tanks in Monsters, Inc. And she just looked at me, and she smashed her hands down on the flagpole, and it clattered to the floor, squashing poor Jason's toes in the process. And then she leaned in front of me and she looked at me and she hissed, how dare you disrespect the scout honor. You shall spend the rest of this session in the kitchen. And willingly, I faced my consequences. I turned around and I saw this line of stunned statue-like cubs staring at me as though I'd grown a third arm. And then I caught the eye of Hugh. And he had the biggest smile on his face. And he had a proud gleam in his eye as he winked at me, which was his way of telling me that I'd done a good job. I did spend the rest of the evening in the, in the kitchen all by myself. But I felt it was worth it, because I had achieved what I wanted to. I had earned the respect of Hugh. And he told everybody at school the next day. And it's still his favorite story. Thank you. Played by Cassie Riches. Her tagline was, be prepared. The next story we have for you today is from Alex Vickery with Facade. I guess I've always been different. I mean, I was always a tomboy as a kid, but that was all right. My dad wasn't around and... My mum was too busy with her interchanging boyfriends to pay much attention when I picked cars over Barbies. And when I hit my teens, my friends didn't mind if I wanted to wear sweatshirts and trainers when they were all wearing skirts and heels. But I guess things changed when I started uni. That's where I met Callum. He was in his last year when I was in my first, and... There was this instant connection, like in the movies. I still remember our first date. He took me for a picnic in the woods. It was so romantic. But then I started my second year of uni, and he got a job that meant he travelled a lot. I was still a bit of a tomboy, but that was still okay. He didn't mind. But the longer he was away, the more uncomfortable I felt in my own skin. I guess it would be a bit extreme to say I hated myself, but I certainly wasn't happy. A year went by. I started my third year and I met a girl called Katie. She was everything that you could ever want in a friend. She was confident where I wasn't and she made me feel confident in myself, I guess. And in six months we were best friends. So I shared my feelings with her. I explained to her how I felt. And she mentioned that maybe I was transgender. And I thought, at this point, I thought that was ridiculous. So I did my research. I read some blogs. I watched some movies. And it fit. But I couldn't handle that. So I thought I could try being a girl for a while. I put on a dress. I put on some heels. And I did my makeup. I curled my hair perfectly. And then I looked in the mirror, and it felt wrong. 
I got angry. I, I grabbed some scissors from the kitchen and I cut off my hair. It seems ridiculous now, but it was necessary. And the next day I told Katie what had happened and she told me that that was stupid. Why would I not have faith in myself? So she came to my dorm and she helped me bind my chest. I put on some jeans and a t-shirt and trainers and we went uptown. She told all of her friends that my name was Alex. No one questioned it and it felt good. I had no idea at the time how something that must be so wrong could feel so right, but it did. So we did it again and again and it became a weekly routine. And then Katie got this idea in her head that I should tell people that it shouldn't be some massive secret. She told me that maybe I could start small, tell some friends. I told her that I couldn't. She told me that she understood how I was feeling, but I knew that she didn't. If, if she wanted me to tell people so badly, then she couldn't understand. She wouldn't stop. She started telling me that I should tell everybody, not just a few people, that I should make some massive spectacle of myself and tell everyone. Again, I told her that I couldn't do that. And she told me that I could, that she had faith in me, but I didn't have faith in myself. She kept going on about it day after day, week after week, and eventually she told me that I should tell my parents. I thought maybe, just maybe if I did that, then she would stop. She would leave me alone. I remember being sat at the kitchen table with my mum. Her newest boyfriend got sent upstairs like a naughty child. She just looked at me. She knew that something was going on. And I just, I told her. And she told me that she needed time, she needed space to think things over, that she would try to understand. So I left, I went back to my dorm, I carried on like a normal uni student pretending that nothing was wrong. But it didn't stop Katie. I logged onto Facebook one day and it said that I'd been tagged in a photo. That wasn't unusual, I wasn't exactly unpopular anymore, so I loaded it up and it, it was a picture of me. The picture of me is Alex. So I untagged myself, I reported the photo to Facebook, I said that it was of me and I, I did not like it and they took it down. So everything went back to normal, or so it was supposed to, but Katie got so mad at me. She told me that she was trying to help, that she had confidence in me, that she was happy with me the way I was, so why wasn't anyone else? And that was when she told me that I should tell Callum. See, as lovely as he was, he was the kind of guy that would laugh at the gay couples on the street. And he had been the one constant in my life for as long as I could remember, so how could I risk that? I tried telling Katie this, but she was having none of it, of course. She told me that if he loved me, then he would stay. There would be no problem. Again, I told her that I couldn't. I told her that I'd already made such progress that I couldn't take this step. This was the one thing that I could not do. She told me that she got it. I, I thought that was that. 
I got a text yesterday from Katie. She knows that Callum gets back tomorrow and she said that if I don't tell him, she will. And this massive part of me knows that if he does love me, then everything should be okay. The happy endings do happen, that, it's, that I can be accepted. But I don't know what I do if he doesn't understand. Thank you. Behind the Mask was the tagline for Alex's story, played by Carly Coopie. Finally, we have Chris Saunders, The Money Shot. So, I love photography. It's something that I've been really passionate about ever since I was a kid, and to me it's more than just a hobby. It's something I really want to take into the future, and I've just always loved it. And so about two months ago, my photography course was holding this competition. And basically, it was whoever could capture the best nature shot would win 500 pounds. And I love nature as much as I love photography, so this is right up my street. So I signed up for it, and this was also around the time for my birthday. It's my uh, 22nd birthday. So my parents, they got me a plane ticket to Canada. And I always wanted to go to Canada. It's one of my favorite countries, even though I've never been there, but they just have the best wildlife nature views and everything, especially in December when it's winter time. There's a white over there, it's just beautiful. So I flew over there, I wasn't really good on the plane because I'm kind of terrified of heights, but I survived. Um, I got myself a motel, I rented myself a car, and on the same day I landed, I got my camera and drove to the boreal forest, which is actually the largest forest in Canada, I do believe. So I went there, traveled for about an hour and a half, went to the front gates, these massive wooden gates, and park ranger, he greeted me, and he told me that basically, don't go too far into the woods, and be careful, because nothing's controlled in there. It's not like a zoo, everything runs wild, they do whatever they want, so, me being the oblivious idiot I am, I just completely ignored him and went on head, deep into the woods. I didn't get lost, but I went pretty deep, deeper than I should have. But... <laughs> It was amazing. It really was. Because this was in the winter and the snow just came up to here in my boots. And everything was just so white. It was like something you'd see on the front of an expensive Christmas card. And the sound of the snow crunching whenever I'd step, it was just, it was peaceful. It was lovely. I loved it. But back to taking a picture. The picture that I dreamed of, of winning this competition, was a deer. A deer by a tree. I'm not exactly sure why it had to be a deer, but it just had to be a deer in its natural habitat. With the snow and the flowers and the sun shining through the trees, I just wanted it to be perfect. It had to be perfect. And so I was looking for this deer for about three hours. I took loads of other pictures just in case, but I was searching for three hours. It was pretty cold, pretty intense, but it was fun at the same time. As I was walking through the woods, I started hearing this weird noise. It didn't exactly sound like an animal, but it sounded like a drain, kind of like that. So I was turning around, I was looking, seeing where it was coming from, then it stopped. So I thought, oh, okay, I'll just carry on then. 
So I ignored it, carried on walking for a few more minutes, and then I started to hear it again. And this time it was more clear, it was more vivid, so it started to sound like an animal, but I didn't know what kind of animal, so I was looking around again, checking behind me, and then I turned to my left. I looked to my left, and all I see is this massive brown bear walk out between these two trees, sniffing the ground. He was about 10 feet away from me, and I'm not going to lie, I cried myself. I was just frozen, stood still with my camera like this. I didn't know what to do. Should I run? Should I stay still? Is it going to devour me if I try to run away or something like that? So I was just hoping they wouldn't notice me. They would just carry on looking at the ground. Then lifted his head up, and our eyes made contact. And my heart skipped, I'd say, about a dozen beats. And as soon as it saw me, I just... There was no questions about it. I just turned around and I sprinted back to the car. I ran like my life depended on it. I didn't know if the bear was following me or not because I couldn't hear it over my own breath. But I kept on running, I kept on running, and I turned around and I see this tree as I'm running and has loads of branches on it. Like The branches were low, and my first instinct was just, right, climb this tree, get high, and just don't die. So I ran over to the tree, I started climbing it. I, you know, never climbed anything so fast in my life. And I rested on this large branch. I was about that high from the ground, maybe, something like that. So I turned around, turned back around, and this bear, it was following me, but it wasn't like sprinting towards me as it wanted to kill me. It was like lightly jogging, like a puppy dog or something like that. So it was kind of adorable, but I was still terrified, of course. Um, I was just sat in this tree, and the bear comes, and he's just, he's looking at me, and he starts circling the tree, and he's sniffing around the ground as well, and this was going on for about 10 minutes. So about 10 minutes, I was sat in the tree, I still have my camera, and I'm just waiting for this bear to go. I'm just praying that this bear would just leave me alone. But after a while, I was looking at it, it was still sniffing the ground, and I thought to myself, wait, this would be a perfect opportunity for a picture. So I aimed my camera at the bear, and the bear looked up just at the right moment, and I pressed the button, I took the picture, and it was loading, it was still processing, and when it loaded, I looked at the camera, and it was perfect. I was just sat there in the tree, grinning like a little kid, just looking at this picture, because... It was perfect, the way he was sniffing the ground and looked up and had snow around his mouth and his big brown eyes and the flowers in the background and everything was just pure white, except the bear's fur. It was just, it was a perfect blend. And as I was looking at the camera, I looked back at the bear and he was walking away, just trotting along so casually. And it's weird because he followed me to that tree he must have saw that I had a camera, and he waited, purposely waited 10 minutes there for me to finally get it in my head that, wait, I should take a picture. And as soon as I took that picture, as soon as I looked at it, he just walked away, like his job was done. And I was honestly, I was an amazing experience at that bear. You know, it could have just been one massive coincidence, but I don't like to think of it that way. You know, 
And as he was walking away, it was just, it was pretty good. It's a pretty good feeling that he actually let me take that picture of him. And I didn't lose my throat either, so it was all good. And then after a while, I climbed back down the tree, found my way to the car and drove back to the motel and enjoyed the rest of the week in Canada. And when I got back, I, I won the competition. But I wasn't really that bothered about the competition because I just couldn't stop thinking about that bear. You know, it was, <laughs> it was one of the greatest moments of my life, just how he interacted with me in that way. So, thank you. Performed by Jerry Oram. His tagline was, an unusual encounter. That's the end of all our stories for today. Thank you to all of our performers. And thank you for listening. Please come and join us on February the 8th, 2017 at the View Cinema in Stroud for our next project, Be Not Afraid of Greatness. For more information, you can check out our social media. Search for Five Valleys Productions on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you. Thank Bye. you.